All right, today on the podcast, we are extremely lucky to have all the way from the United Kingdom, Mr. Rope Geeks himself. Alan, how you doing? I'm good, man. I'm very good. Good to speak to you. Yeah, it's been a while and uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast here. So before yeah, we get going, having me. yeah, no worries. Before we get going too far, how about just a quick who you are and what you're doing right now? Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, so I'm Al. I'm based out of the UK down in the southwest. Uh, what do I do now? I do a bit of everything, really. Um, I work for the local water authority Monday to Friday most of the time, uh, running their rope access and industrial rescue team. I've been doing that now for poor seven or eight years on and off. Um, and then also I kind of freelance doing the rope geek stuff on the side. And we do, oh, what do we do? A bit of rope access contracting. We do uh, industrial rescue training. And we also provide a bit of training to SAR teams and that kind of stuff. And basically whatever um, whatever floats our boat at the time, really. Try and keep it interesting. Try and keep it varied. Yeah, keep the mind engaged. Right on. And so for the listener today, Alan and I have, uh, is too much to list off. We've got a good plethora of stuff we're going to be going through kind of back and forth, kind of a rope rescue, rope access kind of conversation. And I guess to start with, let's just jump right in the deep end and go with rope geeks. You have a certain style that you like to train or a way you like to train. And I'd, I'd like to get your, your definition or your thoughts on that particular style, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, no, that's cool. So, um, I think the best way to come at this. So, I'm a, I'm a civil engineer. That's kind of where I started out. Um, I did civil engineering project management for you know a good few years, probably ten years before I got into professional rescue. So, I approach industrial rescue and rigging with the kind of with my engineer's brain. Um, not to say that we need to overanalyze what we do, but um, I kind of I, I use that sort of analytical thinking to um, to go with it. But so our, our training is not necessarily um, and the rigging that we do. It's not necessarily um, descriptive. We we like to give people options. You know, that's what we're all about. So my favorite thing to run a workshop is to turn up on the first day and get a, get an idea for the experience in the room and what people want to get from the class and then tailor the workshop around the people that are there. Um, that really fascinates me because it keeps me on my toes as well. Um, but as far as the style of the rigging goes, um, it's clean. It has to be clean because, um, well, I suppose you'll probably get this. Like, There's nothing worse than, than going to a class and someone teaches you something and it's just you know, the knots are undressed, it doesn't look right. And, you know, there's nothing to say that that's not unsafe or dangerous. But if you're taking the time to train, or if you're working industrially, industrially also, because, you know, time is not necessarily a constraint on you. It's not like, you know, a little Timmy's down the well, he's screaming, you've got to get him out in the next two minutes before he drowns. This is, a, you know, with industrial rescue and the kind of training we do, you're there in advance, you know, you know what the score is, you know what's likely to occur, what the hazards are, and so you can plan for those accordingly, and you can rig accordingly, which means you can take your time, you know, 
the kind of stuff that we do, you've only got, let's say, a team of three or four people. So why would you make things difficult for yourself? Why would you not, you know, get that high directional exactly where you need over the edge that your ropes are not going to rub? Why would you not use powered winches? Why would you not elevate all of your rigging off the floor? You know, it's, yeah, it's all about making making good, clean choices that make your rigging more efficient and um, make your job easier, I suppose. Um, yeah, is that enough of a rant for you? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I agree. Ne- I, I say to guys and girls, neatness counts. And I've seen situations where people have had trouble trying to safety check a system rigged to like a bomb-proof anchor because though they've got the slings interwound and you know someone's trying to separate this mess and for the five seconds it saved you on the rigging it just added five minutes on the safety check i've seen long tails get caught in the grating you know the um a lot of those catwalks have that metal grating yeah long tails on each get caught in there and stop an entire system and it's one of those things where it's like neatness does count here it's it does yeah. actually create a more efficient system. If you do yeah. this long enough, the odds will stack against you at some point. Yeah, totally. And if you're, if you're training, you have the time to do things properly. You know, like you have to learn not to cut corners. Um, and then in the heat of the moment, you can choose which corners to cut. Does that make sense? So if you're going to train, train to the nth degree, do it right, do it 100% right, as close as you can, as best you can, because you have the time. And then when, you know, the pressure is on and you've got time constraints, you can cut those corners, but you can do that knowingly and, you know, you, you can choose which corners you want to cut. But in training, no, there's, there should be no excuse for that, really, in my opinion, unless you're doing, a, you know, a timed event or whatever. Um, do it right, do it a hundred percent or, or just don't do it at all. No. And that brings up, you know, I agree with the statement there of understand your systems so well, like that matrix view of things that you know what to cut at what point, but like you yep. said in the training, there really is no reason not to do that there. It's yep. that, you know, from the military, we used to either do explain, demonstrate, imitate, or demonstrate, explain, imitate, whatever, you know, was the, the feature of the day, EDI or DEI, but that was, you know, show them the perfect example, explain to yeah. them why that example is there, and then have them imitate that example, right? I mean, that's the foundations yeah. of adult learning, almost back to the basics. Yeah, totally. Show, show them the most perfect example you can, explain it very thoroughly, but also um, you want to explain why so uh, um a lot of training you go to people will say to you no this is what we do this is what you do this is how you do it but what they don't explain to you is why you do it that way that's that's key really and it depends what level you're training at as well or instructing at you know if you're teaching new people um like greenhorns or whatever that are fresh to the industry then you don't necessarily need to go into as much detail but if you're teaching experienced people or other instructors then you should really delve into that detail of this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it, and this is why we're doing it. You know, this is this is the reason that we use this technique. Because, you know, you might have 10 different techniques um, 
all which achieve the same thing, and they've all got their own pros and cons. He's saying on this occasion, this is the t- technique we're going to use, and this is exactly why we're going to use it. This is why it's good in this scenario, and this is why it might not be so good in others. They're adults we're teaching at the end of the day, or that the, I tend to teach. You know, they're grown ups. They've been in that industry for some time. Um, you have to credit them with intelligence. Um, give them as much information as they can and then allow them to make their own decisions. I think that's what makes good rescuers. You know, they need to have those options and understand the pros and cons of each. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of teaching by rote versus, versus teaching by principles. And, you know, Micah had kind of said something, sorry about that, kind of said something about this on the podcast where, you know, he was talking to, we're talking about pro board and IFSAC accreditation. And that's almost now starting to become a, teach by rote. Hey, you got to do X, Y, Z to pass the test. Mm-hmm. Where we've noticed a concern with this is when we go in and do stuff like our rescue, the rescuer programs, where we actually, people have to do principle-based thinking at that point. We have a problem, identify what's wrong, identify what principles need to be employed in order to fix the problem, and then roll the team out. And when you come from a rote-based world, that's actually fairly difficult. It was an interesting observation as that part of that program. I have some other ones, but that particularly was people that came from a rote-based world had problems with that principle-based thinking. Um, one other quick point to what you said is, you know, you teach adults, generally have been doing this for a while, what have you. One of the podcasts I have queued up, that'll be out uh, for listening before this one actually, is I took three of our, I call them kids. I mean, one of them is my kid, They're 20 years to 24 years old. And I, some of the questions I threw at them was like age discrimination on jobs. Uh, one of them, Abby, sexual discrimination on jobs. And one of the other ones was, is the training that we're providing for you useful for your generation? Like you're the generation of, of, of cell phones and they've been wired since birth. And it's funny that they come back and they go out of all the training they've done. Some of them have university. They've all been through high school. This explain, demonstrate, imitate, or demonstrate, explain, imitate. They indicate that that is a hundred percent solid for their way of, of learning things. So it's interesting that, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. We've now got to Gen Z or whatever they are. We've got three, you know, three groups in between. And yet that's a tried and true tested of delivering this style of information to people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing of just that's crossed my mind as you speak is that the um, people of that generation, it's like, you know, I am a child of social media, you know, so I follow, you know, various people all over the globe who are fantastically good at what they do in this, in a similar kind of industry. But so you get fantastic images of, you know, amazing, you know, sloping high lines, Norwegian reefs or, you know, skate blocks, arbor reefs, all of this kind of stuff. And you look at these images and you think, oh, wow, these things are fantastic. But they don't, you know, and you can see a lot of this stuff. You can see from the images how that is rigged quite easily. But what those images don't tell you is why it's rigged that way, what scenarios it's useful for, you know, and how it should be operated. Um, Without that, you know, without that base knowledge, yeah, you can replicate this stuff, but someone needs to go into that detail for you as to exactly what the pros and cons of this stuff is, not just, you know, how to how to put the thing together. Oh, I, it's, all I, about, it's all about why, you know? 
That's your social media troll to a nutshell right there. Oh, that's terrible. I would, you never do it that way because you've got no context in what's actually occurring in that particular situation. You know, I agree. There's some stuff I post that I go, I wouldn't do it that way. Unfortunately, I'm getting paid by a client and they're saying, we've only got this device and we're not spending, you know, 50 grand to fix stuff. So, or not fix it. This is legal. It works. Everybody has one. This is what we need you to move forward with. You know, I either don't take the contract. It's not illegal. It's not unsafe. It just not might not be the way that I think it could be done. I think it could be done better, more efficiently. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, I try it's yeah, it's the, the whole social media thing is a weird one. It's like everybody, everybody on the internet is an expert, you know, and it's very difficult to reason with these people after a while. I just, you know, cease to reason. There's there's not really uh there's not really much benefit to that a lot of the time, you know. I think a lot of them do. I've been known to poke the bear the odd time. I think a lot of people out there are just like, hey, well, let's see if I can get a rise out of somebody. Yeah, it's like I, I I see some of your posts. I'm like, oh, well, they've just lit the blue touch paper again. I'll come back in an hour and see how many hundreds of people they've got complaining. Um, yeah. Which is kind of amusing. I mean, I do it myself. Like, yeah. um, we rig to handrails when, well, you know, we rig to handrails when we've got big steals in the way because it makes it more difficult. Um, and you know full well when you post a picture of that on the internet that, that, that people are just going to melt. You know, the phone's going to be red hot. But it's a case of without the context without the explanation you know an image means nothing a lot of the time it is interesting though because there is a flip side of that i posted some stuff the other day we were doing some lift and move stuff i've got a client coming up in in this late winter that's a particular unit that has weight issues with their equipment because of where they're operating and i'll leave it at that but so it's we're going and doing certain things and going okay we're not going to, you know, our wind last, we're not wind lasting them per se. We're just tying it back. Right. We're, we're definitely taking the slack out of there. We're using three to ones, but we're not, you know, putting the pole or something in the middle and tightening it and driving it into the ground because there's only so much equipment that these folks have, but you get some good mm-hmm. feedback though, from the people that actually just take the time to DM you and thank you to those people where they're like, do they got shovels on their car? What about wrapping a shovel in there and driving it into the earth? And I'm like, that's money. Like I'll take that to them. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's this oh, yeah, limited definitely. year cash that I have to use. And you get a lot of people that are like, you know, you, the, the trolls that that's ah, just wrong. I might be wrong in your world, but in the world that I'm going into, this is what we're going to get. And there is no other option. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, also it goes back to what people, what people know, what their industry does, what their industry teaches them as well. You know, like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but like rope access guys, you know, we anchor with six mil cord a lot of the time in the training that we do because it teaches good skills. I'm not suggesting that people should do it every day of the week. Like, for example, when we do training, we'll build a gin pole and we'll do it all with power cord, you know, and we'll do all the anchoring with power cord and, and all that kind of stuff because it, it teaches good skills, you know, but I'm not suggesting that you should do that every day. That would be ridiculous, really. I mean, like at work, I build gym poles very frequently for, for, for confined space access, excuse me, for confined space access, um, you know, for recoverable systems over handrails and things. And we've, we're, you know, 
30 seconds walk from the truck, I've got a bunch of Aztecs. You know, we put the pole there, we wang a load of Aztecs on it, job done. And we might put two big steel slings around a around an RSJ, rigging plate, a couple of clutches, you know, so it's recoverable and off we go. You know, so it's probably like a five, 10 minute rig for that. That's where we might spend an hour and a half, maybe two hours, possibly more, rigging a gin pole and a load of, you know, fancy anchoring off of Marginal Pro and all that kind of stuff. But But it's a case of that's not, necessarily what you need to be doing every day um but you know full well that that people if if they're rope access guys um and and they see that it's completely outside of the their realm and they will just melt you know as where in actual fact if you get the explanation behind it what you're teaching here is the principles you're making it you know you're you're making it interesting you're making people think and you're making them use as many techniques as they can you're not saying that's what they have to do but an image doesn't, you know, an image will never explain that. No. Um, to, Picture's not you, you worth a to, thousand words in this case. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, and, and, it, and it hardly ever is. No, it, um, it gives you a snapshot in time of a specific item, you know, of rigging, whatever. It's an actual fact. It's very far from the whole story. So I guess in that, in that uh, thought process of rigging right now, We've kind of gone on and done a little couple of things here recently about redundancy, done a, you know, yep. on the podcast, we've done a blog about it. What are your thoughts on redundancy? Or do you find that as an industry, we're moving, we're trying to fail safe stuff that's already redundant or, you know, what, what are your, what's your take on that? Uh, so I, I am a, I'm a big fan of true redundancy wherever possible. Um, equipment and humans I think I think if you can do it you know and it's practical to do that then that should be your goal always I think Um, because you know devices fail people fail carabiners fail ropes fail so why would you not wherever possible you know um, employ redundancy with those things Um, it's just sensible but there are certain critical points which are allowable in my opinion it's been joked about many, many times in various forums, but the whole rigging plate thing is just ridiculous. Um, I was in, in fact, I was in Poland at Rojam, really cool people over there. I learned a bunch from them. And it was when the, the IRATA were curling out the, um, the two point protection principle follows through to the rigging plate. Um, and, uh, the argument that was being had in a foreign language that I couldn't understand was just fantastic, you know, very, very heated. Um, and after a while, once everybody calmed down, they turned to me and said, you know, um, you know, what do you think? And I just said to them, where are the, where are the dead rope access technicians from all of these rigging plates that have failed? You know, because to my knowledge, it's never happened. So why can that not be an allowable point? You know, um, yeah, I think you can overthink this stuff. Um, it's kind of the point I'm trying to make, really. It's like, you know, you want to follow that principle, but there are certain things which are in industry accepted as being allowable, and that's one of them. Um, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are. You know, I mean, I just see a lot of people trying to add fail safes to already redundant systems, and I'm, yeah, I, I am in favor of redundant systems 90% of the time. There is people we train and things that we do in the tactical world or um, military world 
where we move away a lot of times from um, a two rope system into a single rope technique, but there is yeah, I mean, 100%. That's what, that's what that's why I said um, where practical. So, yeah. for example, in mines rescue in the UK, um, I'm talking about abandoned mines here, not you know active stuff. So essentially, you're using caving techniques. We virtually always use um, two rope techniques for the casualty and single rope technique for access, or we should be doing that in most situations, in my opinion, because it's not necessarily practical to be doing or even required to be doing two rope technique. If you've got rescuers who are volunteers and who are not doing it every day, they're using single rope technique every day to go down these mine shafts recreationally. And then you try and throw a two rope system at them and say, you know, well, you're on a job now. That's what you need to be doing. And that's not what they would be doing every day. Yeah. Um, kind of it's, 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 you know, in my opinion, that isn't necessary. Um, but I yeah, what I do find interesting, what I do find interesting is um, now a lot of people are thinking along the lines of a single rope being redundant um, when you consider each end of that rope. And I know you guys have done a, a, a decent amount of research on the whole uh, reeve with the two to one with the ASAP on either side of it. That's that principle can has the potential to be expanded where, you know, you've only got a single rope, but you're considering both ends of it as being redundant. I, I think that that's a rabbit hole that has yet to be fully explored. I think that's quite an interesting one. Agreed a hundred percent. I'd like to see more of that thought process than adding more devices to already two line systems to make them onerous. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you're you're talking about like putting ASAPs in front of your clutches rather than having rope tailors and adding quick draws to your cutenays to back up backups and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I think just yeah, where does it end? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally. Um, uh, someone I learned a lot from a few years ago, Mister Thorne, called that um, redundantitis. I think was his term for that. Where you know. <laughs> You just, you just, uh, you know, redundancy on top of redundancy on top of redundancy. At, at some point, it actually ceases to be helpful. You have to decide, you know, how how redundant are we going to be? Let's go with two. Let's go with two points. Let's go with two devices. Let's go with one operator, two operators if we can, you know. But let's let's not overthink that. The Highline carriage is the perfect example of it. It's a case of Highline carriage needs to be clean. It needs to be safe and it needs to be redundant as far as it can be. But overall, one of the most important things is it needs to be clean because there is nothing worse than a high line carriage getting stuck mid span. You know, I'm sure you've done it on the rescue, the rescue classes. It's yep. a complete pain in the ass to sort out. You know, so why would you be putting, for example, quick draws um, between pulleys and the track lines, for example, that kind of thing? It's um you are you're potentially you're removing a critical point yes but you might actually be adding another point of failure or a different method of failure if that makes sense well it was interesting one of the so, first years at grimp we had, they told us you need to put a dog bone in on the Cooney highline on the on the carriage and we're like ah, okay and about two um scenarios later they look at our carriage and they're like oh we don't know if you can use this anymore it's scored and we're like it scored because you had us put in a highlight on a carriage that we had to go back yeah. and forth on, right? So we couldn't even pick a side. 
So the only reason it's damaged is because the guy two scenarios ago made us put this thing in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, P- perfect example. A Kootenai, you know, it's designed to pass a knot. It doesn't even do that particularly well, but it'll eat a carabiner for sure, you know, as soon as you put one anywhere near it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, my, my, my take on the redundancy thing is just that, basically, is, is decide how much redundancy you want. Stick to that, you know, it, it, and, and if you go too far with it, you're just potentially going to make the situation worse exactly as you just described there you go um i know you had some points and this is going to be kind of weird i'm going to kind of turn the podcast over to you and we're going to have a couple bits of conversation so i know you had a few uh conversation pieces here so why don't you start with a couple of those yeah so um as i said to you a moment ago um we we had a discussion yourself and i or a long time ago now like when was when was it that we met at ITRA? That was well over two years ago now, um, which doesn't seem like very far away, really. A lot has changed. Since it was then. pre-COVID. I mean, um, that's the way you almost have to look at the yeah. world. Just pre-COVID yeah, and pre-COVID. Hopefully, there's a post-COVID yeah. at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it seems like time has kind of stood still for a while. But anyway, so we we had a you know we were shooting the shit about rescue the rescuer and a few other things and. You said to me about gear sales. I can't remember in what, um, you know, where that came from, but I just remember you saying to me that, it, that effectively you guys try not to sell gear wherever you can because um, it conflicts with um, the ability to be an impartial training provider. I'd like you to kind of expand on that because that's sort of, that's something that is, that I've been thinking of ever since then, really, because I sell gear um i don't sell very much of it it's not like you know not my prior uh, primary purpose in life um but it makes me feel dirty really because you know i i like to provide training to people i like to consider myself impartial or as impartial as i can be like i um you know we we try and take all the toys with us um and we use the good stuff you know wherever we can um, and we and we talk about the pros and cons of equipment uh, and try to be as impartial as we can. You know, I have preferences on my gear, but I don't think it's based around who the manufacturer is or or how much profit margin I have on these things or whatever. I try and think of, of gear as, um, you know, what's good in what scenario, yeah? But a lot of people who provide gear uh, provide training as well, and that just doesn't sit doesn't sit well with me and i'd like to know your thoughts on that because it was you that initially sparked that off with me i mean this is a a pretty interesting conversation if you want to look at it from a business point of view like if you wanted to take this and analyze it at a business course of course you want to sell gear because you want to be in the sales cycle completely that person goes somewhere else for their gear and that other company that they buy gear from also provides training, they're now looping into those that sales cycle mm-hmm. and you're going to lose a potentially lose a client depending on the relationship you have. And so, I mean, from a pure business mindset, you know, selling gear completes that sales cycle. I mean, you got these old terms like percentage of wallet, what percentage of cash are we getting out of that client? I'm talking very cold and heartless here. I understand that where you know, we want more of that percentage of wallet. How do we do that? How do you get like services that are already married to your services? And this is how empires are built, for lack of a better word. Um, I walked away from all of that, hence why I have a company named Ronin. Um, 
But at the end of the day, if you want to sell gear, gear I find is the points on gear are a lot less than the points on training or rescue standby. And yeah. generally it's because there's a lot of people that sell gear and it's, uh, you know, I'm not trying to diss any particular industry here, but like first aid training, I can't imagine why we would go into first aid training. I can go get an eight hour first aid course for 80 bucks in order to make the margins on that much like I find with gear sales, it no longer becomes a margin issue on points, it becomes a volume issue. Mm. If I'm only making 30 points on gear sale or 20 points on gear sale or 10 points on gear sale, I either need to sell very expensive stuff. So 10 points on a hundred thousand meets the numbers, or I need to sell a hundred thousand worth of $1 items. You follow me? So it becomes yeah, totally. a volume game on the money side in order to, to run this. And I, I'm not trying to make this a business thing and that could go way deeper into that. And so I'm just kind of scratching the surface. Now, in order to get those types of volumes, and I love the gear manufacturers, we work with a ton, mm. but in order to do that, generally you have to start picking and choosing because a lot of gear manufacturers will do tiered systems, for instance, where it's like, Hey, if you sell, you know, zero to 10,000, this is the discount you get 10,000 to 50,000. This is the discount you get, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, then obviously if you're at 48,000 and the next discounts at 50 for the next year, there is a very big financial incentive for you to sell $2,000 more of gear in the month of December or those types of things. And now we're human. There's no two ways about that. We all have belly buttons. We were all born. So it's December. It's COVID. It's been a shite year already because, you know, some training has been canceled. And I can get another 5% discount on ABC Rescue Gear next year if I sell $2,000 more of it in the month of December. Does that influence your decision? If you say no, you're a liar. If you're in the game. If you're yeah. in the game, right? like, and this is the thing is you, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you can want to be as purest as to this and your ideals as you want. But at the end of the day, sooner or later, when you run a business, you're going to get put into a situation where you're going to have to make a decision that's going to piss someone off. And it might be you. It's, yeah, it's an unfortunate thing where, you know, these types of things come up and, you know, that's just one example. And there's, there could be many more. And what I find is once we stopped selling gear, I got a lot of NDAs from companies then sent to me from probably all the major gear manufacturers saying, Hey, if you want to help with this and sign this and don't sell our, you know, tell what we're doing to, you know, BCD company down the street, we're happy to have you come and trial these and give us feedback and things like this. And, you know, there's a point of pride even in that where you can say, Hey, no, I didn't design anything or, you know, I'm not the brains behind any of this, but I had a little part or Ronan had a little part in testing that equipment or putting it out to market or running it through its paces. And you know, that, I guess that's where you want to be in the industry. I would prefer yeah, so. to be making those kind of differences. There is a value cost to that. 
there's no two ways about it. 100%. And I think your, I think your clients will respect that more, you know, because they can see that you're wherever possible, uh, open and honest about that equipment for sure. Uh, I think that's, it's just, that's it's more your for good relationships. Clients, yeah. It, but it is more your boutique clients when you're dealing with, I'm, I, I'm, I'm being very careful with my words here because you never know who listens to these. <laughs> but there's certain clients we have, the, the people that are taught by rote, and they want, we're doing a job, we're in this industry, we need to bid this, we need it to be as cheap as possible. And there are those clients that exist that you end up interacting with at times where that decision of you that you've made doesn't mean anything to them. They actually look at you from a pure business point of view and go, you're a little bit stupid. Why aren't you doing that with your branding or your name or your backing? Why aren't you pushing this out? And it has to be a moral decision with that. I mean, we can back this conversation right up. I've said it publicly before. I'll say it publicly here. I should not be providing rescue standby to people as a company. It should not be a private-based service. We were out of site, and I've told this story before. We were leaving site. We were underground. Someone broke into the site, climbed up a tower crane, committed suicide by jumping off at about 75 feet. My three guys could have walked over that body and went out the door. They were off the clock. The first aid attendant that showed up, she hadn't done first aid a lot before, started throwing up. Our three staff took her aside. Go away. We will deal with this. Didn't have to. Now I have a I have a dilemma as a business person. Do I pay them for that time? I can't bill a client for it. Well, of course I pay them. They're my staff. They did the right thing. But there is a there is a percentage of society that would be like, no, nah, I can't build a client for it. you guys. Keep walking. They've got a first aid attendant. And you're getting to a position in that where you're now arguing for people's welfare over profit. And the equipment argument isn't quite there, but there is a moral argument that could be made there. Maybe I'm dreaming, you know, maybe I'm a crappy business person. Maybe I should be, you know, studied in some business class or whatnot to do. Like those, all those things do exist. But at the end of the day, you got to do the right you thing. You have to decide. Yeah, you have to decide what kind of business person do you want to be? Do you want to be that guy or not, you know? Um, and I'm I'm happy with the decision making that I've made. I think, like I I, I made the decision many years ago that I, you know I didn't want to teach people how to operate IDs. I didn't want to teach people how to build three to ones. I wanted to do what interests me, you know. So and and I know full well that you know the money to be made in the UK in in rescue training and industrial rescue training is the bog standard, you know, co-worker rescue, safe work at height. Um, all that kind of stuff, which is the day in, day out. And, you know, if I was more of a businessman, then that's what I would do. But but that doesn't interest me as a person. You know, I want to do what I want to do what I'm interested in and what I think is right. Um, so I think the, the gear thing comes but comes comes very much down to that. It's it doesn't sit well with me. So I think I'm probably gonna follow your suit and just stop doing it or maybe do it on a sort of demand only if and I only ever started selling gear because it was a case of, you know, I, I got reasonable discounts with, with suppliers. So I thought, you know, I can pass that on to people and then it sort of snowballed a little bit. But the case of 
it, it just doesn't sit well with me. I, I would prefer to be impartial and, and recommend equipment with a clear head. And if that means that they go to other people to purchase it, then that's fine by me. I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. be that guy. And I mean, there's, there, there's ways about this too. And it's one of those things where there's another business philosophy that's do what you're good at and contract out what yeah. you're not. Yeah, and yeah, no, I, I, I firmly believe in that. You know, guys like Coast Ropes here and TNT. TNT sent in a, a team down to compete in Grim North America. They don't do training. But you, you want to talk about people that know and understand gear? Well, when they're competing on it, then you're going to get an honest opinion from them, in, in my opinion, with what's going on. Guys that are over at Coast Ropes, I mean, they've been around this industry since I've been in this industry, which is pushing a, over a quarter decade now, <laughs> you know, they're rope access qualified, they're rescue qualified. They go and they do those courses and they come out and they take courses with people like us or come and watch. Yeah, and, cool. you know, they're good at what they do. They know product. They, they like to sell. They like to do that. I like to train. So partner with someone like that. And if yeah. it be becomes mutually beneficial where they can give you training and you can give them gear sales, then to me, that's a win, right? Yeah, that sounds like a, that sounds like a very good, good solution indeed. So, you know, there is other methods to do this, right? There's the empire building method and then there's a collaboration method. Yeah, cool. Okay, so I'll turn interviewer again. Okay. Um... <laughs> uh, so I, I'll I'll make a statement to you, um, and uh, I would like to, to to hear your opinion on it, really. Um, and that, so that's that. Firefighters are not always the best industrial rescuers, um, and that statement's not designed to you know annoy firefighters. I know that um, or speak bad of them because I know you know a lot of your audience are those people, and I work with a lot of them myself. They're very experienced people, um, but do you think they always make the best industrial rescuers? Ah, this isn't a, this is another non yes and no question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, it's, you know, there's no right and wrong answer to this. When, when you first brought this up before we started the podcast, I wrote down fire and then I did an arrow and a triangle to industrial arrow and a triangle, the rope access with the arrow back to fire. And then I started writing like arb, um, tack you know these types of stuff in, in the middle stunt because yeah. there's a mix in there too yeah totally so that the, so the other statement that will lead on from that then is that rope access rope access technicians uh, are not necessarily rescue technicians yeah and it's it's one of these things where let's look at industrial and, and fire department because i guess that's probably the closest the differences that i find is industrial generally i mean there is industrial guys and girls that respond primarily they're industrial fire departments though so i'm going to lump them in the fire department category um your regular industrial rescue standby that we send our people out you know you probably do they've seen they get a hazard assessment the entry procedures they're part of the tailboard they're part of the lockout they're part of any sort of briefs they're there over generally sometimes multiple days, or if they're not multiple days for the one job, they're working for a client that we go back to regularly and they know all the players, they know all the people, they know all the spaces. They kind of have that historic of 
this is generally what's going to happen in this space. They're pre-rigged. They have the time to do that rigging. They have the time. We force our people, force, to train while they're on site. So they're running some scenarios and these types of things. So they've kind of what if that. I'm going to say this comment and a bunch of firemen's heads are going to swell and I, I, there's no other way I can do it. Fire is truly a no-fail mission. If my industrial rescue team screws the pooch, can't get the person out, who do they call? Well, they call 911 and the fire department shows up. If the fire department can't do it, who do they call? There is no other phone call now down the line to solve this problem. You get that you know, force majeure occurring. We're doing a rescue standby and we get the earthquake over here and half of Vancouver falls into the ocean. We get the floods we're having while someone's in the space and the industrial rescue team goes, whoa, this is way out of our billywick now. Like we're, This is off the rails now. But who, who gets called for that? The fire department. That's it. That's, that's the end of the line at that point. And the difference in that rigging comes from that no-fail mission. And it's why military teams end up using SRT at time. It's because you get to a point where this is a situation we have. This is the gear we have. And there is no other person that's going to come and do this for us. So we better figure out how to get it done. And we may break rules. We may break people. Right? I mean, the fire department does preach this. We will risk a lot to save a life. Nowhere in, in, yeah. in business do I go and say, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice your life to make sure I can get four of my clients out of that hole. That's a ludicrous statement. Yet we will. I mean, you're providing that. a very good service to your client if you were to do that. Obviously. Oh, yeah. But in the fire department, that's not an, an unheard of statement. So to me, that is the difference between fire rescue rigging and industrial rescue rigging. It may look the same. It may sound the same. It may be on the same hole, on the same space, on the same site. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a slight difference in thought process in attitude and that makes all the difference because so my my thoughts on this are that um that uh so we we run an industrial rescue team and uh, a lot of that team are people that um work elsewhere in the business and come and uh, take part in that team when they need it so they're guys that you know they they do a lot of confined space work themselves. They do a lot of en- heavy engineering work, um, engineering maintenance, electrical work, all that kind of stuff. So these people have got first-hand experience of the sites, the hazards, the likely scenarios that are going to play out with this with this industrial stuff. Um, so, but we also have. Um, fire guys who come in and, and backfill as well so i deal with i deal with both i deal with industrial guys and fire rescue guys um but the, the kind of the point i was trying to make is that i don't necessarily think that all fire rescue personnel um, are necessarily trained or equipped um, to be the best people in some of those situations if that makes sense so um for example Tomorrow, um, 
I thought I had a week off in between Christmas and New Year, but in fact I don't because one of our pumping stations has fallen over. So tomorrow I'm playing down a 60-meter drywall. Yay. Um, but that place is like, it's got some fairly major hazards. You know, there's um, you've got pumps that weigh, what, three or four tons. It's a 60-meter lift. You've got a gantry crane. You've got mobile cranes. You've got a lift which only decides it wants to work half the time. You've got the potential for hydrogen sulfide. Um, there's flooding. Um, there's some really difficult uh, isolation issues there, valving issues. Um, you know, the, the place is, you know, everything can be controlled, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of, you know, balls up in the air when the works when the works going on there. So, would you be better off with a fire rescue guy who's come in for the day to assist you, who may well be qualified, have all of the tickets that you need to undertake that job, or would you be better off with you know, an engineering chap who's also got rescue qualifications, who knows the ins and outs of that situation, you know, what's likely to occur, all of the bits and bobs that I've just gone through. It's kind of, I'm not saying one or the other is necessarily correct, but they they all kind of, they all play tunes together. I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's a clear answer to that, but it's um, it's an interesting thought. Oh, I agree with you on that point where it's it's nice to have that that mix. And I'll throw my kid in as an example, the youngest person in the company is 20. I think he on site, cause we track the actual on site time. I think he's into 1300 hours on sites this last year. Yeah. You can find a fireman that's done 1300 hours of confined space or rope access, confined space rescue standby, hangles rescue standby or rope access. That's what he's done. Those 1300 hours. If you're going to find a fireman that's done that in the last year, you won't find it. What? No. And, and also the thing is with, with, a, with a standby rescue team is that, a, that their role is not necessarily just to react to a situation that's occurred. No, um, there's, nothing, there's nothing better than preventing an, an incident from occurring initially. Um, and the best people who can do that are people who are acutely aware of the situation, the hazards, the isolation, all of this kind of stuff. It's like, you know, when you've got a guy in a crane basket working underneath a five-ton pump with his head stuck up the volute and you think to yourself is that pump isolated i might just go over and check you know because why would you you know why would you not prevent an incident first and as, as i say the people with the engineering experience are often the best people in those situations um, but then saying that there is the there's the there is the counter argument to that where so how many of those people have got you know a, a lot of hands-on experience with casualty care possibly not you know like your average uh, wrong your you know your experienced fire rescue person um they might well be you know jobbing on a daily basis and dealing with people with you know blood spurting out of every orifice and whatnot is where your industrial rescuers they might not get that you know they might not get that over an entire career you know so there are pros and cons to both for sure absolutely and i mean that's why we try to balance sending out people on the teams when we have some of these jobs where, you know, these are younger staff that are trying to become fire that are working for us don't have that emergency experience. And it's not even, you know, seeing this or seeing that we're recruiting for search and rescue right now. I volunteer with the local SAR team as you probably aware. And we, um, you know, some of the questions are around, you know, give us an example where you were in a stressful situation where you, you know, partook in an emergency and what did you do? And have you ever seen a dead person kind of thing? I mean, the questions are a little bit more 
you know, politically correct than that, but that's what we're getting at, right? Yeah. It's amazing how many people sit there and they're like, well, no, I don't, never really been in a stressful situation or, you know, driving in traffic last week was their answer. And I've never seen a a dead body. So I don't know how I'm going to react to that. And there's a lot to be said for having staff that our emergency service personnel just because they're used to that environment. They're used to stepping into that chaos bubble and just solving problems. And it's that's where that experiential learning comes in because it's it's experience that you can only get one way. And it's being yeah. on the sharp end of a yeah. stick, right? It's uh, yeah. it is a tough 100%. question. And you brought up yeah, the I mean, rope access as well. I mean, just throw the other loop into this. Rope access people are unbelievable on rope, like moving on rope, like being the, uh, the, the attendant on the basket or the barrel boy as some of the mine rescue teams call them. But a lot of them have never seen a basket stretcher. No, no, And you know, the, their, their qualification required for casualty care is normally a single day first aid at work qualification. Um, but as you say, that if you want somebody to physically operate on rope, then you cannot be, you know, a rope access tech for sure. Um, but they're not automatic. Like oh, I was on a wind turbine gig or was, you know, gearing up for a wind turbine gig, I don't know, a few years ago. And one of the, they wanted, so this is a standby rescue offshore um, wind turbine team. And they wanted um, rope access supervisor ticket. And it's a case of, not nec- it's not even really relevant at all to to the requirement but a lot of industries see that rope access supervisor as um you know as a rescue person and that just isn't necessarily the case i mean they're trained for co-worker rescue obviously and um, they're very good at it that's not you know i'm not trying to um say that they're not but um as far as a, a standby rescue person you know that ticket doesn't that doesn't qualify you well, we've had that conversation for a while, and I've even had it with uh, with the folks in Sprat specifically on some of the committees. Is I mean, when we started, like everybody else, we had to start with ones and twos and go to threes, and you know, it wasn't like I got to magically parachute in and be a Sprat level three. And when you went through those, we're we're getting jobs and having to contract out level threes at the time, and we had level threes come in and go. I don't know. How do you guys think we should rig this? And I'm like, I- I'm literally paying you for this service because I no have way. to. And you're asking me for the solution. So then you do you do find a lot of these people where uh, I remember I was um, I was at Belay and Rope Access who were down um, on the south coast of England. Really nice people. If you're looking for rope access training in the UK, go and speak to Ian and Belay. Lovely people. Okay. Um, but they um, they uh, they had a guy there who was going for his three, so for his first first time assessment as a three, and he'd basically spent the last uh, two years aid climbing around the structure doing NDT. That was pretty much all of his last thousand hours were doing that. Um, so when it comes to doing a three, he's got none of the, and I'm not a level three qualification. Uh, the training is designed that you should be able to do four days of training which equips you to be able to do the fifth day of assessment. So in, in theory, as long as you've got the hours, you should be able to pass that assessment on the fifth day. That's the way that it's designed. 
Um, but as far as a rope access supervisor goes, ideally you want someone who's got all of that other experience to go with that piece of paper. Um, the piece of paper alone doesn't necessarily give you everything that you need because, you know, they're only trained to certain scenarios and certain situations. And nowadays it seems that there's less scenarios and less situations in those qualifications than there ever were, you know? Um, Don't get me wrong. I'm not like a, I'm not like a sort of highly experienced level three. I'm kind of, I'm a lowly IRA two at the moment and I've got British standard supervisor stuff. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm in that world, but, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a rope access technician. I kind of dabble. I'm an irata nothing. So there we go. <laughs> no, I think but back, there are, like, back to the original conversation. Sorry. To do this and do it well, you've got to have some emergency service background. You have to have at least responded to something and seen that side of it. You need to be able to move on rope like a rope access technician. You need to have the wherewithal to lock out, to do, you know, uh, isolation or lockout tag out over here. Um, So you've got to have been on industrial sites to see that, to understand that you can't take X, Y, Z into a space. You've got to have looked at, you know, some ARB and some stunt rigging and some tactical in order to get those principles and, it's unfortunate because a, a lot of folks now want it in a ticket overnight. You know, what course can I take to get this? Mm-hmm. You take all the courses you want, but you probably got to go out on sites for the next 10 years and see all of those things so that your Rolodex of experiences start to, to add up. And I, I guess there's really no other way to do that. Every single one of those trades, I don't want an arborist putting bolts into a tower crane, a true arborist. And I don't want a true rope access technician trying to cut down the tree in my backyard. But if those two trained together and went out on a job together, I would be completely happy that they're much more knowledgeable as the whole than the one. Yeah. You know, so we're both very much on the same page, I think, um, for sure. That takes me down to, um, something else on, I have on my list of random <laughs> questions for Mark, um, which was about uh, cross-pollination between trades and the question of, is all training actually useful? Um, so just to flesh that out a little bit, I think you cannot beat going on, you know, within reason, as many different varied training courses as you possibly can in as many different industries as you possibly can to learn from other people you know so like i've the reason i ended up doing what i'm doing is that i i joined uh so i'd been doing SAR for a, a good few years and i'd been doing um civil engineering for a while and got bored doing civils and i thought you know i want to do something a bit more interesting and i ended up moving into industrial rescue which was kind of the timing was there and whatever so i ended, I ended up there did a bit of industrial rescue training locally as a student um I just found that, you know, the training was not, we didn't have the capability that I expected as a team, put it that way. Um, So I started looking further afield and ended up uh, traveling a lot. (laughs) Um, I ended up going to see Reed a few times over in the States and in Canada as well. I went and saw Kirk Mostner over in Canada. That actually wasn't all that long ago. Um, I've been to Poland a few times. 
um, and to mainland Europe a bit and all over the UK as well. Just trying to go to, you know, see arborist people, um, go and do uh, mines rescue stuff, um, go uh, do industrial rescue stuff, go do rope access. I wasn't even doing rope access at that point, but I thought, you know, I'm going to go and do an errata ticket just because it's kind of more more tools in the toolbox, as you would say. Um, and I just think that that whole cross-pollination thing cannot be beaten where, you know, so I did a workshop in Poland, um, which was great fun. We had a, we did like a three-day thing in advance of this big um, rope access meeting. And then they had a, they had a rope access competition there, which I didn't even know was going on. It was, it was amazing. Like probably 30 or 40 rope access guys with a huge, like, obstacle course for grown-ups you know and they're monkeying around the place doing all kinds of maneuvers as quick as they can and all this sort of stuff and for me just watching these people operate uh, and also seeing what gear they were carrying with them the way that they had their harnesses set up what kind of cow styles they were using how they were using the devices it's like you cannot beat going to these places seeing these things um and even on different training courses that the, i find a lot of the time uh, drinking beer in the evenings and talking to the people that are with you um you know like i've been to places where we've had the coffee table upside down but you know way too late at night really for a training course um and going you know back tying the legs of the of the table in as best we can you know at like two o'clock in the morning after the beers because those are the experiences that you know they're the experiences that stick with you they're all of the tools in the toolbox you don't have to use them all you know like you know, go do as many training courses as you can. Get pick all of those cherries, but you don't necessarily have to use them. But you can put them in the back of the mind. And I'm ranting again. But my question for you was, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the cross pollination thing? Because I'm sure you can you can spitball about Grimp Day and and how fantastic it is just to go and you know compete, but also to witness other people and how they do these things. It's like you you can't beat that. Um. It, it's huge for us. I mean, even in our system, it's a tiered system for like team member to team lead or, you know, what we call rescue specialists. And like to become a team member, you've got to do some industrial courses like your, you know, fall protections in your confined spaces. You've got to do your NFPA rescue. You've got to do your rope access. To get into the team lead, you've got to go and start working on your construction safety officer ticket, which is what the hell, right? But um you know but to get up into the rescue specialist you've got to have a higher medical level you've got to attended uh, a rope rescue competition you've got to be at least a level two rope access tech so and we didn't just randomly pick those things it wasn't like we decided hey we should give you know rope access a wing this week um and you have to attend an advanced training session at least every three years and we try to bring someone in every year. I mean, COVID has certainly been difficult with this, but, you know, we've sent a couple different, you know, we go to Mothner's uh, as you've been down there, you know, mm. try to get out there. We brought in like Delaney, we brought over Axel, brought over Eric, you know, we've been here, we've been there kind of thing. And, you know, we've used Rich Hattier who does um, Arborist, um, you know, just to get different stuff because you don't want to drink your own bath water. That's that's the worst thing no. you can do is start to think that hundred percent you're the end all be all in this. It's it's gonna bite you in the arse, and it hopefully, it just bites you in the arse. And it's not when you're hanging three hundred feet in the air, but you know, and it's like yeah, you say it's we're going over 
you know, touch wood, COVID dependent to do IMP one and two. And we get a lot of people in Europe that are like, what do you mean you guys aren't IMP one and two? No, we work under a totally different system. Like that system doesn't even exist for us, but we're still want to go do it because like you say, there's value in, in learning. There's, and I'm not saying that the IMP course is going to be poorly taught or anything. Eric's probably going to throw darts at the screen as I'm saying. But <laughs> even if you go take a course and you come out of it and go, oh, I didn't really get a lot out of that. You're going to have seen different instructional, instructional techniques. You're going to maybe have seen different ways to teach tying the same knots that you know. You're going to see other thought processes into doing stuff. And for instance, in the IMP system, that whole risk assessment segment of SRT versus, you know, two rope mm. and when, when that plays in and, you know, so you're always going to pick these things up. You look at, you know, the ARB stuff and it's mostly single rope. And when you look at a guy like Rich throw a weighted bag with a line through a tree and just like, move it through branches like he's moving it on a drone or something yeah you're just like wow dude if i got a job for you like you know like show me how yeah. you're doing that because you just see these little tricks from these industries that just make your world so much easier and i mean i learned more yeah. from which than just that but i mean just amazed at watching him weave this bag through trees like it's attached like on a remote control it's amazing and it's like yeah. you know just those little tricks um oh totally like i um i was in um where were we uh jasper um taking one of reed's classes as a student and um uh rich carlson was in town i don't know if you know yeah. rich he's like a kind of can canyoneering or canyoning, as we would say in the UK, kind of legend, really. Yeah, I don't and, know. Um, I've never met him. I know who you're speaking of, though. He's just such a nice dude. Um, and it was a case of he was running, like, I don't know how many days, but it was like a few day kind of workshop thing he was running. And we messaged him. And we were like, dude, like, we're in town. We know we, we, we can only meet you up, meet up for a day. But do you mind if we kind of drop in and say hello? And most, most like people will just be like, no, sod off. You know, it's kind of, it's a four day deal. You either turn up for the four days and pay the money or you don't kind of thing. But he's such, such a nice dude. He was like, yeah, just pop along kind of thing. And we dropped in there to see him for a day. And the way that he operates his training is he basically just kind of, you you turn up as if you were going canyoning so it's like what gear have you got on you and he'll basically run that training that day based on just the crap that people have got attached to them at that time because if you think about it if you were going down a canyon and you needed to rescue the guy that was with you that's what you would have to do and i just admired that so much it was just a case of you know well we got you've got this bit of gear you've got that bit of gear well, let's run with that you know and it's a case of how how sketchy are we able to get away with um, it was absolutely amazing. And that's kind of stuff that I'm probably not going to use. This is the point I'm, I was making earlier is I might not use that every day. I might not ever use that stuff, but, but you can, you know, pick the techniques to use, learn those techniques, learn as many as you can from as many people as you can. Um, you don't have to use them all. Just, um, you know, put yourself out there. I just find from a, from put my business hat on as the owner of a company, like, sending folks to Grimp Days around the world. And our people have to deal with a lot of their own logistics. And there's a reason for that. And having this cross-pollination, we get we got a job 
we get a fair bit of them, but one in particular got flown into an air base in what would have been used to be Eastern Europe. Uh, had to teach confined space rescue to the firefighters there out of the C-17s. And needless to say, none of our people have been on C-7. Well, some of them have, but the people that were going over had not been on C-17s. We didn't have a list of equipment that they had, nor did we have a list of the qualifications of the people that were attending. Nice. Nice. And so, I mean, you know, sometimes these are the way jobs go. It just happens, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. our two instructors, they get shown up, show up, they get picked up, they get driven to this base. There's your bunk. Uh, we're starting at nine tomorrow. And they're like, hey, could we have someone there at seven with the gear just so we can take a look? And they basically have two hours. I mean, most of the course is the course, but let's take a look at the spaces. Let's take a look at the gear. Let's take a look at the training records. And let's put this together. And in order to have that confidence and the ability to do that, and for me yeah. to have that confidence in them, when you've gone yeah. to Grimp and had to do all your own logistics and you've got some of this cross-pollination and you've seen some of these other devices, so you understand the limitations of those devices and the, you know, the pros and cons of using them, you can actually sit down with some comfort after that two hours and go, yeah, we're running a program here. We're good to go. But it takes that cross-pollination and that those experiences to get there. 100%. Yeah, that's my thoughts on cross-pollination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, I think a lot of people, you know, don't necessarily think there's value in seeing other industries, um, but they're, they're all interconnected. You know, the, the arborist guys, the stunt rigging guys, the rope access guys, the fire guys, um, even you know climbers and, and whatnot. It's all it's all interlinked. It's all it's all different ends of the same spectrum. If you're hanging on a rope in the water, in a trench, in a hole, off the air, on a mountain, under a helicopter, different rope, um, you have some experiential knowledge that falls into this pot it's just you know there's no other way you can you know cut that yeah yeah and the same with the, the with the with the grimp stuff it's a case of you know i know you've got a hell of a lot of experience with the grimp day stuff i've just been there just the just a lowly once um but for me as a an experience to go and to see how other people are operating, what devices they I mean, we were fortunate fortunate enough. Um, I was doing the safety team stuff with Hugo a couple of years ago, three years ago, in fact. Another yeah. thing that seems like it wasn't very far away, but actually is. Um, and we we had to do all the gear checks for everybody. And for me, that was fascinating. You know, it was like blitzing through everybody's harnesses and all of the stuff that they had packed with them. Just you know, obviously different for defects and stuff. But but it was just really interesting. You know, to see you know how much gear people are carrying. You know, some of them carrying massive amounts of stuff. Other people, I think you guys at the time were actually going fairly lightweight. Um, it's just interesting to see the differences how people have got their stuff set up. Um, yeah, just you can't beat those those kinds of experiences just for putting little little nuggets in the back of the brain that you can maybe curl out on another day it all adds to the adds to the experience you know oh and even the other side of grimp outside of competing in it i've helped out at a few grimp days either like you say a safety or technical advisor or, you know going down with cmc and even planning out some of it on the 19 grimp down there and it's 
it, that helps with you for creating courses and delivering training to students because it it just see you see other people's way of organizing complex information and mm. it's just useful yeah totally so cool have we hammered that one i think i'll get it well enough <laughs> I think you have I any more on those i i don't recall the only the only other thing i have on my list is just hashtag experts is the only thing i have left hashtag um, experts. yeah and that is um my deep distrust of anyone who uh, considers themselves to be an expert we all know we all know at least one i'm sure um but the point i'm trying to make is that uh as soon as you consider so like you know i provide training i provide training at what i think is a reasonably high level you know we do some interesting stuff but i would never ever consider myself to be an expert at my trade you know everything that we just whittled on about probably for the last half hour is about going and taking training with other people you know because you can never consider yourself done you know so oh, that's it i'm full of information i don't need any more i'm a pro now you know that's me done um that's not how the world works you know like the world moves forwards uh probably a continuously accelerating rate especially the way that society is going at the moment as soon as you kind of sit back and go yeah you know i've learned that i'm done with that you you cease to move forwards you become stationary and the rest of the world moves forwards around you so you just end up moving backwards um so yeah never ever consider yourself an expert um you just lost the battle as soon as you do that i agree with you on that 100 percent. i mean i kind of view it as there's different levels of mastery and those levels also change with your mental game your fatigue level all those types mm -hmm. of things at times and yep. yeah, I agree. We've been chatting here. And I mean, me personally, I had to go and certify for my rope with search and rescue. So, you know, going back, taking a course and, you know, doing the exams, I'll have to recertify my level three Sprat before February. And then in April, I head over to seas to do the one and two of the, uh, you know, basically call it their, the IMP one and two for the North American listener call that you know you're like your rope uh rescue awareness ops tech although they teach different things so yeah it's uh if you just does that mean you can call yourself a, a grim poor after you've uh after you've done that apparently yes i guess that does fall <laughs> into that but uh i think it's one of those things where going and just being a student again and you know try not to do the old well, that's not the way we do it. Just <laughs> seeing how other folks actually do something and yeah. taking it for the merit that's there in the context that exists. You know, we rig and do things differently in SAR than we do in Ronin, than I do in Fire, than I do in Rope Access sort of thing, than I do at Grimp. And it's all contextual. It's all principles. It's all similar. They're all cousins to the same, you know, family. But there certainly have those variants and my mastery level of each one of those cousins is different. Absolutely. You don't yeah. see me out teaching tack rope courses because, I mean, I could, I know how to repel. I know how to 
repel on the devices that are used there. I know how to repel on single rope, but I've never been in a situation where I've had to blow the window and go through the door. So let yeah, people that like have those experiences teach that program. And I will number yeah. two it and teach the mechanical advantage or things like that, where I have relevant world experience. But that's just life. I mean, that's just how that has to go. Yeah, 100%. So like if, um, you know, I've got various experience in lots of different fields, but like the win winter stuff is something that I know nothing about. You know, I've gone and played in the mountains a little bit, but I wouldn't consider myself a winter climber or a winter rescuer. You know, it snows down here once a year and the whole place stops. Um, but, but like if anybody ever calls me and says, you know, we need to run a, a winter rescue, whatever, I'll, I'll just pick up the phone to James Cooper and say, Hey James, you know, we, I've got this gig. Can you come and sort it out? Because that's what he does every day. And I'll kind of sit there and probably learn from him. Um, like you, you can't beat people with experience in, in the, in those specific fields. Um, and don't, try and kid yourself that you've got it when you haven't and that's funny you say that because like you give that example it's minus 20 outside right now and i finished shoveling this morning we got a probably three feet of snow in the backyard i've been down to mount baker and done programs with like american alpine institute and crevasses and glacier travel and you know blah 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 and i don't consider myself a winter person no fair play right like there i can ice climb i can backcountry ski those are just recreational activities in Canada, but like there are people, Kirk Moffler, that I would consider him a winter yeah, yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. One of my old business yeah. partners, Jason Budd, he's a, he's a, I think he's a full guide now. Once again, I would consider him a winter person, right? And they're just people that do that better. And that's like you say, it's a different level of mastery. Am I going to get to a position I know enough where I can stop and go, this is my boundary. So, you know, maybe I'm better off for the person that doesn't know that, but I'm not the guy that can go, Hey, I know how to cross this boundary at this point. No, but there will be, but the thing is that the, there will be nothing worse than, than trying to play that guy. The, you know, the, that would be, that would be a bad call. You know, you need to know when, like you said earlier on, pick, pick the gigs, you know, if it's not right for you, then just, just don't do it. You know, there's no point in trying to, trying to style that one out you know and maybe you throw that out as a warning to people listening is you know there's a big thing that says fake it till you make it you you hear that in business and stuff the problem Mm -hmm. with fake it till you make it in the actual instructional end of this is the consequences for faking it become very severe very quickly yeah right you never want to injure a person that you're training and furthermore, you never want to kill a person that you're training. Not that it's just bad for business and your insurance rates are going to skyrocket. <laughs> but these are other yeah, human beings that you're dealing with. And, you know, being responsible for ending someone's career and or life is a lot different than just, you know, oh, well, you know, I, they got a bad deal on a car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good call. So yeah i think uh i think that's everything that i had listed i think that's everything that you've got listed yeah the only the only thing i wanted to say was thanks for having me on like i remember when i was just getting into this industry you know a good few years ago looking at uh what was it tech rescue mag and seeing adverts for you guys in the back and thinking oh wow you know these are the dudes so uh cool just to be able to chat man i appreciate it 
No, I mean, I appreciate it hundred percent as well. It's uh, you've always been someone, uh, Chris Elson, one of the guys who used to work for us, he's back in Wales now, mountain biking, you know, he had mentioned your name years ago as somebody to tee up with when we're over on that side of the pond. And, you know, certainly if COVID permits, I know we're still looking at trying to get a rescue, the rescuer over in Europe and you're yeah, part that. of that. And it, <laughs> once we could get on a plane, right. <laughs> mm. 100%. Yeah, I was bummed. I had so much lined up before COVID. We were, you know, we had the rescue, the rescuer stuff over there. I had some stuff lined up with Cliff over there and quite a lot of gigs on mainland Europe and everything just, you know, just wasn't meant to be. But, um, yeah. Fingers sure crossed it will come again. this, yeah. you know, things open up in whatever way that looks like. And we're able to once again, see friends around the world. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, the world is smaller than it has been, you know, the fact that we are, you know, able to converse. Well, the fact that I can just, you know, message, you know, people in Germany, people in you know, Poland, people in, you know, wherever, uh, and just to, you know, uh, everybody in this industry seems to know each other now. It's, um, it's really quite amazing. And it's awesome too. I mean, I found that at Christmas, by Christmas Eve, my phone starts beeping. And then of course you realize, yeah, the folks in Australia, and Singapore, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. then Thailand and stuff like they're already having Christmas. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's wild as it kind of just moves across every hour. You get some different friends on there and it's like, of course, <laughs> it's Christmas morning for them now. Right. Crazy. Yeah, it's good. So anyway, thanks again for coming on and uh, we will chat later. Yeah, no worries, man. Thanks for having me.